let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for a better covenant. We thank you for your grace and your patience and that you are sovereign not only in judgment but in salvation and that this is where our hope lies, is in your son Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, a quick refresher, the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is speaking to a, uh, a, an audience uh, that has a uh, religiously a Jewish background, whether they are Jewish or Gentile. You may uh, remember we've talked about it before. In the synagogues, there were Gentiles, some who were curious, some who uh, were committed to the, the faith, of Jew, the, the Jewish people, though they weren't quite willing to, to take that next step and receive the covenant sign. And sometimes in the New Testament, these are referred to as God-fearers. And then there were even some Gentiles who did take that step and convert, and they weren't distinguished. They were considered Jews, though ethnically they were not Jews. And so uh, it's into these synagogues that Paul will go during his missionary journeys. You read about in Acts and that, that's the first place in each city that he will preach the gospel. Uh, without exception, he's rejected in, in all of the narratives that we have in the book of Acts. Uh, but as he goes out from the synagogue, shakes the dust off of his feet, typically there are those who come out with him, those who heard and believed, and they become the nucleus of a, a church planted in that city. And among them will be uh, those who are ethnically Jewish and those who are God-fearers, uh, and so this, the new church in each city is some mix of Jew and Gentile. The Jews in particular uh, were often uh, wrestling in these first decades uh, with the relationship between the law of Moses, that Old Testament covenant that bound them together as a people. Uh, they, what, what becomes of that covenant in light of the finished work, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, so the church is wrestling with that question, the nature of the law. Do we keep the law? What law do we keep? To what end do we keep it? Uh, Paul, as you may recall, spends a great deal of time, effort, and spills a great deal of ink. Galatians probably being the, most, uh, the clearest, most extreme example of it, insisting that keeping the law does not save, and that there are some aspects of that law from the Old Testament that are no longer in effect, no longer required. The people that the author of Hebrews is writing to seem to be tempted, probably because of persecution, to go back to uh, that Jewish faith, or at least to mix that Jewish faith with the, the Christ, with the Messiah, in order to somehow lessen or avoid the persecution they're experiencing. And so the author of Hebrews has a singular project. He's holding up Jesus Christ as the, the, the greatest, most beneficial uh, fulfillment of all of the promises of God. And not only is anything else lesser, but anything else must necessarily be a rejection of Christ. If you want to go back to the law of Moses, you lose Christ, and you gain nothing, the author of Hebrews says, because there's nothing left for us in that covenant made with Moses. So look at Hebrews 7, 
Uh, here in Hebrews 7, the author has been uh, comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. And so there's, remember in the Old Testament, uh, that law of Moses, all the rules that we find there, all the instruction that we find in the law of Moses is pointing to Christ. And there's different ways that it points to Christ. Uh, there is the priesthood, where the priests themselves were a sort of foreshadowing, a type of Christ. There's the offering that the priests bring. That offering itself is a, an anticipation of Christ and His work. There's a covenant context in which all of these instructions are given. And that covenant is a, an anticipation of the covenant that God makes with His people. The covenant of grace, uh, it, it's an unfolding of that covenant. It anticipates what Jeremiah calls the new covenant. Uh, and the, uh, the context, our covenant context today, since Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled all that he intended to accomplish. And so all of those things, the author of Hebrews is, is taking those things and he's showing where those things pointed to Christ, but now that Christ has come, those things are, uh, they're expired they're no longer they no longer have the force of command that they had the priesthood of moses is ended now the author of hebrews acknowledges that it continues in fact there's still a temple at the time at which he's writing there are still levitical priests they are still performing their functions but he says god's done with that that's not in effect anymore God's done a new work in Jesus Christ. Christ is what the priesthood pointed at. There's a better priesthood, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So that's what he's been focused on uh, for these last few chapters. But wrapped up with this priesthood is the covenant that the priest administers. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests administered the Mosaic covenant. But that covenant, the author of Hebrews says, is passing away. It's, it's done. There's a new covenant that requires a new priesthood, and God has provided that priest in Christ. And so we're going to jump into the middle of his argument. He's been pointing to Christ not only as a, uh, a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but unpacking for us why that matters. What's the point? It's because Melchizedek is a greater priest than the Levitical priesthood, and it, part of what makes his priesthood greater is it never ends. Uh, let's pick up in 20. It was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest, that is Christ, with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Here quoting the Psalms. Look at the conclusion he comes to logically here. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So he's, he's coming through this argument about him being a better priest, and the conclusion of him being a better priest, the logical conclusion, is that he administers a different covenant, and it's a better covenant, and he ad administers is such a weak word. He is the guarantor, the author of Hebrews says. He's the one that secures this better covenant. This better covenant is true. It's ours. It will without fail deliver on all of its promises because the one who guarantees the covenant is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is not a mere man. 
Jesus Christ did not appoint himself a priest. All of these would be things that might undermine the efficacy of his priesthood. But God tells us that he was appointed to it by God as a son. So he cannot fail in guaranteeing the covenant. So, uh, you know, I, we don't have any little ones in here really. So I think everybody understands the importance of guaranteeing the covenant, right? It's a, it's a little bit like uh, when you go to borrow money. And if you have no credit history, the lender will want you to provide another signature, someone else who can pay the loan back if you fail to guarantee the payment on the loan. Someone who, who gives the bank the assurance that the promises made in that loan will be kept. That's similar to what's happening here. God has made promises to his people. There's a covenant context to those promises. And God himself, we, we saw the argument of Hebrews uh, the, uh, back in chapter 6, that God has doubly secured the promises that he's made to us. And here we see that, that part of him securing those promises is that the one who secures the promises is Jesus Christ himself, appointed by God as our great high priest and, uh, and the one who has kept all of the promises. So that, that brings us up through 22. Uh, he's going to, to continue in that line. The former priests were many in number because they kept dying. When he says many in number, his, he's not highlighting the fact that at any given time there were perhaps dozens of priests in the temple precinct working. That's not what he means by many. He means that, that the priests kept dying and there was another, and dying and there was another, and dying and there was another, and dying and there was another. And over the centuries there have been many priests. Why? Because they keep dying. We don't... We don't look forward now to a future of many priests, we have one priest forever, Jesus Christ. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. If, if Christ, as our great high priest, only had a certain period in which he served as high priest, and because of death, he ceased to serve, then whatever wonderful blessings might be ours because of his priesthood, those blessings would be in peril because he's the one that secures them and he's going to die. The author of Hebrews says, not Christ. He's able to save to the uttermost. Uttermost here is, is a, uh, a, a word filled with hope for us, the basis of profound confidence in our salvation. He is able to save to the uttermost in every sense. That, that means that for each one of us being saved by him, our salvation is to the uttermost. He won't save partially. He won't save merely by the skin of our teeth. He won't save us uh, in some things, but we're going to suffer in some others. The salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ for each one of us is absolute. Every promise of God will be perfectly fulfilled in the last day in Jesus Christ. But the uttermost here also points to the extent of that atonement, that salvation, 
that it's not just going to be for a handful of us, but every single person in all of history that God has determined to save will be saved without fail. There's no weakness in Christ's sacrifice, no weakness in his priesthood. He will not fail. He saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Look at why he says this. Since he always lives, there's two ways to read that, and I think both are true. Always lives, that is, never dies. So there's not, not going to be an end, but always lives also implies this is what he is always doing, right? This is why he lives. He lives to make intercession for those who trust in him. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own and then for those of his people. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Even the priests of the Old Testament were sinners. And because of that, before they could even come and, and offer a, an atoning sacrifice for the people, they had to do it for themselves. They had to make a sacrifice for themselves first, and only then could they make a sacrifice for the people. So in every respect, whatever it is that we, we can say about the Old Testament sacrifices and the priests who offered them, Christ is better in every respect than those things. And again, why? Why is the author of Hebrews driving this home? Why is he making such a, a thorough uh, argument for this? It's because of the temptation of the readers to go back to it. And what might we do with this today? Because probably uh, there's nobody in this room who's come out of Judaism or is tempted to go into Judaism. Why is this helpful for us today? Because, I'll, I'll say it this way, the thing that they're tempted to go back to, absent Jesus Christ, is the best thing they could possibly hope for. The Mosaic system was given by God and was in effect commanded the covenant context for the people of God all the way up until the finished work of Jesus Christ in history. And if there is no Christ, the law of Moses is the best we have. And if the law of Moses is of no use to us anymore, and I don't mean it for instruction, I mean for salvation, if it is of no use for us anymore, and it was the best thing on offer in all of history, there's nothing else you can go to. So we may not be tempted to go to Judaism in order to find our salvation, but there may be something else. And of course, it wouldn't be explicit. If, if you know the gospel, you believe in Christ, you're confessing Christ, you, you wouldn't explicitly ever say, but this, is the, uh, this other thing is also saving me, or this other thing is saving me instead of Christ. But there are subconscious ways in which we tend to begin thinking about the, the people around us and the things that are around us. And we, we tend uh, subconsciously to slip into believing that what gives us value and worth and makes us valuable and worthful, uh, 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 worthy to other people around us is our identity and our vocation. 
It's our identity in our spouse or our children. Our identity as a, a father, a mother, a spouse. That if those things are wrecked, we find ourselves completely adrift, wondering who we are and why we're here. And that's, we've got to, to always be on guard against that kind of false hope, grounding our, our hope in life and our hope in death in anything other than Jesus Christ. He must be our all in all. And so I think that's what we take from this, not only this, these verses we've looked at this morning, but the book of Hebrews. Uh, we, we are not going to be saved or blessed by anything else. Everything that pertains to our salvation and even the many blessings that we have are ours in Jesus Christ and Him alone. So let me pause there for a second. We're about halfway through our time. Uh, questions or observations on the text? Anything? Okay. Quiet crowd today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Hebrews, it's, it's such a, an easy book, right? Um, okay, let's pick up in chapter 8 then, verse 1, and keep working. Uh, in the ESV, this section is titled, Jesus, High Priest of a Better Covenant. So even though he makes reference in chapter 7, verse 22, to a better covenant, the author of Hebrews does this. Uh, if, you're, if you're going back and reading it on your own, if you're studying it on your own, uh, he, he tends to, highlight, to, to give you a, a sort of uh, um, advance notice about where he's going. So in the middle of his discussion about Christ as the, the great high priest, he mentions a better covenant, but he doesn't say much else about it. But when he finishes focusing on the high priest, he goes to covenant, right? Uh, he, he does this over and over again. He's been doing it since the very first chapter of the book. So he, he tends to overlap his arguments. So he's told us in 7.22 about Jesus being the, media, the guarantor of a better covenant. And in verse, uh, or chapter 8, verse 1, he now takes that up properly. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the, the tabernacle during the Exodus, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, again, that's the Mosaic covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So... Let's talk about a couple of things here. The law of Moses is, is abrogated. It's done. Now, we've talked about this before, but in case any of you weren't with us, or maybe you don't recall, we need to clarify some things, because the Ten Commandments belongs to the law of Moses, and if the law of Moses is no longer in effect, no longer in force, then what do we do with the Ten Commandments? And the answer is that the law of Moses contains within it what we call the moral law. That's an eternal law because it's rooted in God's eternal and unchanging character. It was law before the law of Moses was given, and it continues, in effect, as law after the law of Moses. That moral law is always true. And the Ten Commandments are a sum, a summary, of the moral law. All of the moral law is comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the one who teaches us this. Remember when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't sound like the Ten Commandments, but it's actually a summary of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Two tablets, the first tablet or table, the first four commandments, which describe our relationship with God, and the second table or tablet, which is the next uh, six commandments, which describe our relationship with one another. So when, when Christ answers the question, what is the greatest commandment, he does so by summarizing the two tables of the law, which are themselves a summary of the moral law. So when we say that, that the, the Mosaic covenant no longer exists, what we're arguing is that 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 covenant in its entirety has ceased to function as a covenant. We are a covenant people of God, but not in the Mosaic covenant. That's the first covenant, according to the author of Hebrews, and first relative to the new covenant. And it's no longer in effect because a new covenant has come. So this is why when we open up the Old Testament and we read in the law of Moses that you're not allowed to plant certain crops one after the other, and you're not allowed when you get dressed in the morning to wear different garments made out of uh, particular different materials. You can't mix those materials in the way you dress. And that we are to stone disobedient children. Uh, These aspects of the law of Moses are no longer in effect. They are not themselves moral law. They are civil law, that's the administration of justice, and ceremonial law, how it is that they were to worship God. Now, we are no longer a theocracy. 
we, America, are not a theocracy. We are governed by a uh, democratic republican system. Uh, God is not king. He is absolutely sovereign over all things, no question. But Israel acknowledged God as their king. Their actual government in the Old Testament was a government led by a king who was God. And Saul and David and Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam and all of the rest of the kings of the Old Testament were, were only there representatively. They, they sat on the throne as a representative king. Right? God was the actual king of Israel. God is not the king of America. We have a democratic-republican system, right? And so, uh, so the, the civil law of the law of Moses is no longer in effect. Uh, all of the ceremonial law, the temple worship, the sacrifices, the Levitical priesthood, the festivals that were required, all of that has passed away because all of it was meant, Paul says, as a schoolmaster to train the people up for Christ. All of them pointed to Christ, and he is the fulfillment. It's a shadow and substance relationship. Christ is the substance that cast that shadow. All of that Old Testament ceremonial law was a shadow meant to anticipate Christ, to point to Christ, to teach about the Messiah and who he would be and what he would accomplish. But now that he's come, we don't need that anymore. There's no need for us to keep the, the ceremonial law because the work that it pointed to has been accomplished. We have a better priest offering a better sacrifice in a better temple, administering a better covenant. God's done with that. And so there's no need for that Old Testament covenant anymore. The first covenant uh, is obsolete, the author of Hebrews says. So this is in part one of the, the things I hope is useful for you with that is that when we encounter unbelievers who uh, polemically uh, want to attack Christianity and they say, you guys are all wound up about, you know, people who are homosexual, same-sex attracted, transgender, but you're not paying attention to any of these old laws in the Bible. You just pick and choose the things you want to be mad about. That's, that's not true. Uh, we're very careful, very intentional about what we understand God says is right and wrong and how it is that we are to live in the world according to his character. Right? So this is why we don't worry about uh, the materials we mix in our clothes anymore, uh, at least not for religious reasons, maybe for sartorial reasons. Uh, it's why we don't worry about uh, what crops we plant one after another, again, at least for religious reasons. I know that there is such a thing as crop rotation, very important. Uh, but we do believe that there is law, God's law in the world. And before I move on, let me pause and say that we believe that God's law serves three purposes, and this is really important to understand. The first purpose it serves is to restrain evil in the world. Uh, does it do that absolutely? Of course not. There is evil in the world, but God's law is written on the heart of every person, Paul says in Romans 1 and 2. Uh, the conscience of man is, is a part of our design by God. 
uh, and it accuses us, it restrains us, uh, and inasmuch as we share this conscience, and that conscience is expressed in our own laws as a nation, uh, we find that there are laws against murdering people. There are laws against lying to one another in contract law. Uh, there are laws, uh, though not enforced anymore, but nonetheless against adultery and different kinds of sexual sin, right? So the law has this general or common grace purpose in what we call the first use of the law. It restrains evil in the world. In the second use of the law, it points us to Christ, because inasmuch as our conscience accuses us, we recognize we cannot be what is required of us in order to deserve God's salvation, in order to be spared the judgment. Inasmuch as we recognize there's a law, and we, we acknowledge that we ought to keep it, we are driven to despair by our inability to do so. And one of the ways I talk to unbelievers about this when it comes up is that even unbelievers, again, because there's that conscience, because they are, are made in the image of God, and though that image has been marred, it has not been destroyed entirely, even unbelievers have some standard by which they seek to live and fail to do so. I don't care who you think your authority is, even if you think you are your authority, if you're honest with yourself, you fall short even of what you would like you to be like. All of us fall short. We're driven to despair if our determination is to live perfectly. The third use of the law is that it shows those of us who are in Christ how to live. What happens to us when we hear the gospel and believe, all caught up in that, that act of believing that that, uh, that, that moment of being saved, being regenerated, is we go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. And you've heard me say it before, it's not a princess bride, mostly dead kind of situation, right? Uh, and it's not metaphorical. Uh, we are, without Christ, literally, spiritually dead. And what happens in salvation is God gives us his spirit. The spirit of God comes to live in the heart of the one who belongs to God. Indwells us is Paul's language. And in indwelling us imparts life to us. This is what God does. And because we have the spirit in us that gives us life, we are enabled then to live according to God's law. Not perfectly, because we still have that, that principle of sin in us that Paul calls the flesh. And these two things are at war with one another, right? Galatians 5. These two things are at war with one another, so we still struggle, and we still fail, but we have the Spirit of God in us waging that war against sin and the flesh. And so, in the context of that war, how are we to know what is required of us, what is right and what is wrong? Besides the conscience, which as we acknowledged, is fallen. It's damaged. God gives us the answer to that question in his word, where he reveals his character and then says to us, you are to be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. An impossible task, apart from the work of the Spirit in us, 
and the promise that one day Jesus is coming back and the work will be finished and will be like Christ forever. That's right. Mm-hmm. But then there are other parts of the ceremonial and civil law that seem, at least from our contemporary remove, somewhat arbitrary. Uh, but it, it seems a little, a little too wrong to say that the heathen gods now perform ceremonial and civil law that are arbitrary. Were they arbitrary? No. No, all aspects of the law of Moses were intentional and did reveal God's character. Uh, but some of them, so uh, this is, I want to be clear about this, though we talk about the three aspects of the law of Moses, it's not like there's a list here of the moral laws, a list here of the ceremonial laws, and a list here of the civil laws. Typically, civil and ceremonial are pretty easy for us to make a distinction between. But the moral law sometimes stands apart and always stands under. So that, for example, one of the laws in the Old Testament is that you have to put a fence around your rooftop. Why? Because they were flat roofs, because in the cool of the day they would go up there. Sometimes they slept on their rooftops at night because it was more comfortable. And you would also entertain. You would have your neighbors over, and you would have your children up there, and you had a moral obligation to provide for their well-being by putting a fence around your rooftop. Okay, that's, that was a civil law that's no longer in effect. Uh, if you have a flat roof, you are not required by God to put a fence around your roof. But what hasn't changed is that if you have a flat rooftop and you spend time up there, you do have an obligation uh, to respect life and to love your neighbor, to provide for their well-being while they're on your rooftop. That still exists. How that is done, how you accomplish that, is no longer defined for you by the law of Moses, right? So everything in the law of Moses points to God's character, but some aspects of it were civil, some were ceremonial, and while they were in effect, all of them were, I would even argue that the, the three uses of the law apply to the law of Moses when the law of Moses was in effect. They provided for the general welfare, first use, uh, if you were trying to keep the law uh, as a, a faithful Jewish person in the Old Testament, you would, if you were honest with yourself, despair of doing it, right? Uh, and so second use of the law. But how ought you to live right now, right now being, uh, you know, the, the 6th, 7th, 8th century uh, before Christ, how ought you to live as one who belongs to God? According to the Mosaic law, this is how we live, Right? And so uh, I think all three aspects of the law as we understand it today, and those, the, the three uses of the law, that, that comes from Luther and Calvin. Calvin tended to emphasize the second and quibble about the language of the third, but he didn't deny it. He went on to teach it using other words. So um, anyways, did you have a follow-up? Mm -hmm. you know, do unto our brother as 
I'm on pins and needles to, to hear which weird law you're about to, to ask me to defend. Yeah. No, yeah, it, it does, and it would have been clear to the original audience what it was. Um, yeah, yeah, the, so the question is, uh, basically, uh, what, what Graham said is, fine, you picked an easy example, Matt, the whole rooftop thing. Let's try something harder and see if it works. What about mixing all the, the threads in your clothing, right? I, I'm, I'm having fun with you, Graham. Um, Graham, was, <laughs> Graham was, was kinder about it, but that's what he was getting at. Um, and so what, what they would have understood and what we understand from those kinds of laws, and it applies to the crops as well, is uh, that a principle of purity was being communicated to them. Uh, a principle of being set apart and not mixing together. So uh, it, it actually, though they sound like they have nothing to do with one another, uh, it's, it's one of a kind together with uh, the laws that said you weren't allowed to marry a Gentile. Um, and, uh, and all of the other purity laws that were required. Uh, some of the purity laws uh, are of the type, like if there's a white spot that shows up on the wall of your house, you had to have a priest come and evaluate it. If it was a certain kind of white spot, there were certain things you had to do, uh, and then it had to be reevaluated. And, uh, and if, if, if we're tempted to say, ah, well, that was just God giving them common sense rules, because if something's growing on the wall of your house, you need to do something about it. That's not healthy. But if you actually go back and read all the laws, all the rules around white spots, there's nothing about it that makes any sense from a um, uh, keeping your house physically healthy sense. Because at one point, they're like, you know, if it's this kind of white spot... Uh, you got to tear the house down, right? Uh, but if that same kind of white spot persists in this particular way, uh, you're fine. If the whole house goes white, eh. We would never say that with like black mold. If you find a spot of black mold, burn the house down. Unless the, the mold overtakes the house, in which case you're fine. Why? Why is it okay if this thing that, that could lead to the, the building being torn to the ground, if it overtakes everything before you can tear it down, then you're fine? Why? Do you, do you see the mix there? You've got a white spot in the midst of everything else as opposed to everything being uniform. So there's contained in these weird, obscure laws, uh, there's contained... Uh, an insight into who God's people are and what's required of them. That they be pure, that they be unstained and unmixed with the, the godless world around them. Now you can say, well, that sounds racist, not marrying other, you know, marrying Gentiles. Well, they actually could marry Gentiles as long as the Gentiles converted. As long as the Gentile came along and said, I, wanna, I want to follow your God and I am willing to keep your God's laws. And if I'm a man, I'm willing to be circumcised, and I want to keep Passover with you, Exodus 12. God says to Moses in Exodus 12, if such a person comes along, they're no longer a Gentile. 
There's one law, he says. And the point of there being one law, that is, there's not a law for Gentiles and a law for Jews. There's one law for the people of God. And if this person, this Gentile, comes in and says, I want to keep this law, I want to worship your God, I want to belong to him and belong to you, there ceases to be a separate rule for this Gentile. He's no longer a Gentile. He's Israel, right? So the, the point wasn't that God wasn't saying, you, you Jewish people are so ethnically superior uh, that you're not allowed to mix with any other races. What God is saying is, I have set you apart, and you are to acknowledge being set apart by not marrying outside of the people of God. And in the Old Testament, one of the ways God communicates this is through an ethnic reality, right? That there is a Jewish people and a Gentile people. But God in his mercy and grace also reveals from the very beginning, just as we heard this morning, uh, in the table of nations, in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, as we see in Jonah and throughout the Old Testament uh, in Exodus 12 and the laws concerning Gentiles and how they come into the people of God, that God from the very beginning has been saving not only the Jewish people, but saving the nations as well. So that's, uh, that's the law. What else? Did you have a follow-up? Nailed it. Okay. Um, any other questions? So uh, this, is, this is a reality uh, that the author of Hebrews clings to and, uh, and is teaching from, a perspective that he's teaching from, that the Mosaic Covenant is completely done away with, no longer in force. It has instructive value for us today. All Scripture is useful, God says, right, through Paul to Timothy. So we acknowledge its usefulness for us. It, it helps us to understand and grasp the person and work of Christ, the love of God and all of his attributes. And so there's great value in us studying it and understanding it, but we're no longer under it as law. We are no longer in covenant relationship with God according to the Mosaic covenant. That covenant is obsolete. So, questions? We've got five minutes left, so I don't think I want to start anything else. No observations, questions, all good. Okay, then I'm going to close in prayer. If you've got uh, little ones in Sunday school, if you would give them just the three or four more minutes that they have allotted before you pick them up, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, the inspired brilliance of the author of Hebrews and how he points us relentlessly to Christ as the fulfillment of all of the promises, as the source of all of the blessings that are ours in him. Father, we pray that whatever it is that may tempt us uh, to turn away from him, uh, to, to, to gaze upon something else as though it were more beautiful, to put our trust and hope in anything else, even subconsciously, Father, we pray that you would make it known to us, uh, that we would turn away from those things and turn our gaze back to Christ, that we would indeed find him more lovely than anything else, uh, and that we would place all of our hope, uh, all of our confidence in him and him alone as the great high priest who offers a better sacrifice in the context of a better covenant. We pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen.